Mark chapter 6. It's a long passage. A long passage. I'll start in verse 14, read to verse 29, and we're going to stay in the passage the entire time. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 14. <clears throat> King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. Others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison. He brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body, laid it in a tomb. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus on the merits of the righteousness of Jesus. I have no claim to be able to approach you except by Jesus. We thank you. We pray for the Holy Spirit. You are triune God. We pray for the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit that inspired this Bible, the same Spirit that convicted our sins, gave us the ability to believe. We ask you to strengthen us. We need help today. Strengthen your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Last Sunday, I opened up the sermon talking to you about a friend of mine. His experience of sharing the gospel in a closed country. 
While my pastor friend has made it home safely and I think is even on vacation this week, his national partner and colleague in ministry is still, even this morning, in a jail. All because, all because he wanted to share the life-giving gospel of Jesus with another person and gave that person a Bible. I've thought about that man's life the last 10 days, on and off. A lot of you have asked me about him. That's all the news that I have. I've thought about him. I've thought about his courage. And from time to time, when I think about his courage, I start thinking about what would I do? You know, you always want to believe you would be strong enough. Could I measure up? Simply because I've not ever been tested like that, neither have most of you. But we will be. By God's grace, for the last 250 years, we have lived in a land of religious freedom and tolerance. But that open window of freedom is closing by the day. You can feel it at work. For those of you that have jobs outside the home, you can feel it at, at work. If you live and work in corporate America, you feel the shift. You can see it at school, especially if you go to a public school or to college, or you can see it in, you can see it in women's sports. How you get your media, you can read it in the media, you can see it, listen to it, or watch it in the media. You can, you can experience in the language we are pressured to use. The sun of the United States no longer shines on the people of God. And every Christian, every one of us, every Christian has to make up his or her mind where you will land You've got to ask, will you be confident? Will you, will you be faithful? Will you be strong? Will you honor God? Will you yearn with Paul, desire to, to know him and the power of his resurrection and, and to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death? If that's what you desire, then I think this story, this tragic story can be a help for you. For the only time in the Gospel of Mark, Mark now turns the spotlight off of Jesus just for a little bit, and he puts the spotlight on one person that is not Jesus, but a disciple of Jesus. This man's name is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the man that Jesus said of in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, among men that have been born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. Which, by the way, reminds us that some of God's best servants end up having tragic lives. 
to the glory of God. Look, I want you to take this story and take strength from this story. I want you to get a second wind. I want you to get a second wind. I want you to decide today that you are going to live your life for Jesus regardless of the consequences. Because in the end, in the end, faithfulness to Christ is all that matters. In the end, faithfulness to Christ is all that matters. Here's what I want to do today. I've been rolling this story around in my mind all week long, trying to get at it. What's the best way to explain it or to preach it? And uh, so what I've decided is that the story is a unit. It must stay together. So I want to keep it together. So what I want to do is just you and I just walk through it. Let's walk through it slowly together with some explanation and some commentary and then come back and uh, after going through the whole thing and make some application. Join me there, verse 14. Starts out like this. You, you follow along in your version? It'll be on the screens too. Starts out like this. King Herod heard of it. Well, if you're just reading that, you think, well, heard of what? We're sort of dropped into the middle of a thought. King Herod heard of it. What he had heard is of Jesus. His name had become known, the name of Jesus. How did it become known? Well, previously in chapter 6, Jesus has sent the 12 disciples out. They are together traveling in pairs. They've gone into the communities and preached the gospel of Jesus. And the more they've done that, the more people are hearing it. And it's, the information goes from the peasants to those that have more money and finally to the government. And it came to the ears of a man named King Herod. Well, let's talk about him for a moment, King Herod. King Herod is not really a king. Mark calls him a king because... A lot of people called him a king, but he really was a tetrarch. He, he was over one-fourth of the kingdom. It was his dad. His dad was King Herod the Great. Now, his dad was a king. King Herod the Great had ten wives. King Herod the Great was in power over Jerusalem and all of the surrounding communities. King Herod was the one who sat on the throne when Jesus was born, and he heard that that there was one born in Bethlehem who was born to be king. When he heard that, he, King Herod's the one that sent all those soldiers to kill all the babies. Go read it in Matthew. All the babies in Bethlehem from two years old down slaughtered. Herod the Great was a terrible man, ten wives, all kinds of children. He had sons that he hated. He had killed two of his sons, just murdered two of his sons. He was such a bad guy that that the Roman emperor Caesar said of Herod, it's better to be one of Herod's dogs than one of his children. That's the home that Herod in the text came up in. This is Herod Agrippa. He is not a king. He is, he's a middle manager. He is trying to get power. He wants to be thought highly of. We meet him there in verse 14, and he's the one who's heard of Jesus. Look at the rumors about Jesus. There are three of them, verses 14 and 15 and 16. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Here are the rumors. Some people, this is the, the most outlandish one, some people are saying that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Verse 15, the other people are saying, no, no, that's not true. This is Elijah. Then other people, verse 15, are saying, no, this is just one of the prophets. So there are three choices to choose from, sort of in descending order. 
And you'll notice in verse 16 that Herod chose the most outlandish because he is superstitious and he has a guilty conscience. Verse 16, look what it says. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, at this point, we pause because Mark realizes that we don't know what he's talking about. We hadn't heard from, from John the Baptist since Mark chapter 1, verse 14, when Mark said to us, when John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus, his star was rising, John the Baptist, and he's just gone. We don't hear any more about it until this point right here. So verse 17 is a flashback. Mark takes us back and says, okay, let me tell you what happened with Herod and John the Baptist. And the story starts to unfold, verse 17. For it was Herod, it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had been married to her. So here's the, here's the issue. Herod... Agrippa, Herod had married this woman named Herodias who used to be married to his brother and verse 18 tells us John the Baptist had been standing out in the street and saying what you're doing is wrong. Let's back up and talk about how wrong it really is. This woman named Herodias was actually the daughter of one of Herod's brothers. Remember his dad had 10 wives and all those children? He had a bunch of half-brothers. One of his half-brothers had a daughter named Herodias. Herodias was the daughter of one of Herod's brothers. She ended up marrying another one of Herod's brothers. So this woman, Herodias, was not only his niece, she was also his sister-in-law. And if you read Josephus, Josephus tells us Herod already had a wife. He was married to a woman who whose dad was the king of Arabia. Her dad, in fact, attacked Herod, almost destroyed him, but he lived through it. And he pursued Herodias, who was his niece and also his sister-in-law, and took her from his brother, who was a weaker man, Philip. Everybody knew this is not only, everybody knew this is not only weird, it's wrong. It's a Jewish society. People knew he had broke the law. Everybody close to him knew what he was doing was wrong. It was weird and wrong. John the Baptist, though, in verse 18, he's the one that stood and said, what you're doing, you are breaking the law of God. Live in a society that knows things are wrong, but nobody will say it. He said it and it got him in trouble. You'll find it in verse 19. Verse 19, Herodias, she didn't like that. Hell hath no fury. She didn't like that a bit. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put John the Baptist to death. She's not like her husband. Her husband is driven by his lusts and by his desires. She's driven by power. She's using her husband to get power. He's using her to satisfy his lusts. She doesn't like to be called out. This is a woman that you should not mess with. Herodias verse 19, had a grudge against him. She wanted to put him to death, but she couldn't do it. You'll see it in the text because Herod was protecting John. He arrested John not to punish him, but to protect John from his wife. Probably held him in a fortress down close to the Dead Sea. 
from time to time in verse 20. What a strange verse, verse 20. Verse 20 tells us that Herod had this strange fascination with John the Baptist. He, he wanted to protect him. He feared him. Why did he fear him? The text says that he knew that John was a righteous man. He was not a, he was not a hypocrite. He was a man of integrity. He, he felt like his words had iron. He wanted to hear what he said. He knew he was a holy man. There was something spiritually deep about John. So he feared John because he was righteous and he was holy and he kept him safe away from his wife, Herodias. Look at the uh, problem in verse 20. He would go and listen to him preach. The end of verse 20 says he would listen to him gladly. He loved to hear him preach, but he was confused, greatly perplexed. That rocked on for a little while until an opportunity. Revenge will find an opportunity. Verse 21 tells us the opportunity was found. The opportunity came when Herod decided to have a birthday party, a banquet, going to honor himself. Remember, this man is, is not the king like his dad was. He needs as much influence and influential people. So the text says in verse 21 that he invited three groups, the nobles. Those are the people that are born into nobility. They've got authority because of their pedigree. Then they're the military commanders. Those are the guys that have won wars. They have medals on their chest. And then there are those that are the leading men of Galilee. They're the ones with the money. All the influential people come to his party. The night rolls on. The wine flows. Tongues loosen up having a party. Normally, you'd have some sort of entertainment. You might would have a servant girl, even a slave girl, provide some sort of entertainment, the dancing. But this is Herod's family. They're a twisted family. You read it in verse 22. Herodias, this woman that is seeking power, she sends her daughter, Herodias' daughter, she may be 18, 19, 20 years old, a full-grown woman. Her name is Salome, and she goes in there and there you find her, verse 22, in this lewd, this, this dance that, according to verse 22 and verse 23, pleased Herod and all the men there. You can almost envision sort of this drunken revelry. And there, Herod says, ask me whatever you want. This grand metaphor, this hyperbole. You want half the kingdom, I'll give you half the kingdom. Verse 24. She is her mother's daughter. She went out and found her mom. Mom, what do I need to ask for? Now the trap is shut. Herodias finally gets her way. She has Herod opening his mouth in front of all of his friends. She has him between a rock and a hard place. He'd been protecting John no longer. You tell him, verse 24 and 25, I want the head of John the Baptist. So verse 25, she came and immediately she ran to the king with haste. The, the fortress is there. They're up in the nice part. Go down to the dungeon. Fortress is there. She comes to the king, and I want you to give me at once. Salome adds to it in verse 25, not just the head of John the Baptist, but let's put it on a platter. Look at the king. He knows he's caught in verse 26. The king's exceedingly but the text says, exceedingly sorry. Why? He loves John. He loves to hear him preach. He doesn't really believe what he's saying, but there's something about him. He's been protecting him. And now he knows it is the wrong thing to do to kill John the Baptist, but he's got the pressure. All the rich guys are here. All of the people he admires, those he wants to be around. Verse 26, 
He didn't want to appear weak. He didn't want to break his word. So he had him do it. Verse 27, the executioner would take an ax with a rounded edge. This man knows what he's doing. His job is to execute. Goes down to the dungeon and there, verse 27 tells us, he cut off the head of John the Baptist and he did what the, what the daughter asked. Verse 28, brought his head on a nice platter. Gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. Verse 29, John the Baptist, the, the story ends like this. His friends, disciples came, got what was left of him, and buried him. You read that story, you realize that, that in the end, it's faithfulness to Christ is what matters. Nobody's, nobody, nobody names their children Herod. A lot of men in this room named John. What can we learn? What, what can we learn from this story? Let's go back now and let's withdraw uh, several uh, convictions and applications. Let's just make some applications, three or four or five of them. Let's go. Number one, here's the first one. Number one, your convictions, your convictions, what you actually believe, your convictions will be obvious. I get that from verse 14. The disciples go out and preach. They preach Jesus. It is the life-transforming power of the gospel. It changes villages. It changes communities. It changes lives. And people start to notice your convictions will be obvious. Not what you say you believe, what you actually believe. It's one thing to say that you are a Christian. It is another thing altogether to actually live your life as a Christian. Your convictions will be obvious. It's more than just a body of beliefs. I share the gospel here every Sunday. If you're a visitor, when I say gospel, I mean that God is holy we are sinners before God. He created us in his image. The image of God in us is disfigured. That image of us disfigured is called sin. That sin has separated us from God. God is just and must punish sin. But the, the Bible teaches, the gospel tells us that he is also a loving God that gives us Jesus who lived perfectly, died in our place to take the punishment from God. And anybody that puts their faith that Jesus died for you, will be saved. So, so there's the gospel. It's one thing to have the information. It's another thing altogether to have your life transformed by the power of the gospel and live it out. Your convictions will be obvious. I'll give you a second consideration. Number two. Your convictions are going to be disturbing. They're going to be disturbing to people. Convictions are disturbing. Here in the text, verses 14 and 15 and 16, you get down to verse 16, and Herod, when he, heard, when he hears of Jesus, verse 16, his conscience, he thinks the very worst because he is not a man of faith, he is a man of superstition. Verse 16, when he hears of what Jesus is doing, his first thought is, that's the man I killed. I knew it was wrong when I did it. I shouldn't have done it. It's conscience. 
God has given us the gift of a conscience. He has put inside every single person the knowledge of good and evil. You know what's right and you know what's wrong. And God uses the conscience to convict us. And here is the stories of Herod. He's just convicted. He knows what he did. He has no desire to turn away from his sin, no desire to turn away from his passions or his lust, but he still lives in verse 16 with the knowledge what I did was wrong. And that is disturbing. Your life lived for the glory of God, even if you do it humbly. Your life, just by virtue of how you live, will be disturbing to those whose conscience is guilty. I'm going to give you a third thing to consider about your convictions. Number three, your convictions will create hardship for you. Your convictions will create hardship for yourself. There are a lot of you sitting right here. You did not get a promotion because of your convictions. You may have even lost your job because of your convictions. Because you believe a certain way, you no longer are useful to the company. It used to be a time when being a Christian actually helped you. If you presented yourself as a God-fearing woman or a God-fearing man, that actually helped you with employment, helped you with your standing in society, that day is gone. When you read verse 17 and 18 and 19, John the Baptist had convictions. That conviction was the Word of God and the truth of God. He spoke truth. Verse 19 tells us that Herodias wanted to kill him. And the only reason he lived is that Herod decided to arrest him and put him in a jail. And the thing is that John the Baptist, what he was saying is what everybody knew to be true. Here is this man, Herod. He is now committing adultery with his niece, who is also his sister-in-law. Everybody knows it's wrong. You can see that it's wrong. John the Baptist is the only one saying that it's wrong. And it cost him hardship. Look, I just want to pause here and just say, there seems to be an even stronger reaction when it's a sexual ethic. What John the Baptist here is doing with the law of God is addressing sexual ethic. As Christians, we believe the Bible teaches that God has created humans, man and woman, in his image, and that the only place for sex is inside marriage. And we believe the Christian ethic, the sexual ethic of Christians is everything outside of that, of the union between a man and a woman, is sinful. And so what John the Baptist has done is done nothing more than say, this is what God's word says, what you're doing is wrong. Now let me just say, when you live your life and people find out that you have these convictions, there is a hardship. We live in a world that has abandoned, drifted away from. And here we are standing on the, on the authority of the Bible, love of God, and the goodness of God, that God created all of this for flourishing. Your convictions will create hardship. If you believe that God created 
humans in his image, male and female, and that the womanhood, that God created womanhood as something beautiful to flourish. Femininity is, is, is given by God for a woman, and masculinity should function as the Bible describes a man. You believe those two things are good and right for human flourishing? You find yourself on the wrong side of history, but the right side of God. But it will cost you. Let me give you something else. Number four, your convictions will be confusing to people. Confusing to people. Here's what I mean. You find that in verse 20. Herod was confused by, by John the Baptist. You read that whole verse, verse 20. He loved to hear him preach. He was glad every time. He feared John. He knew what he said was true. He knew that he lived correctly. But it confused him. You see, he's greatly perplexed by his preaching. I mean, if you take verse 20 and you just write down all the adjectives, he feared John, he knew he was righteous, he knew he was holy, he kept John safe, he was really perplexed, but he listened to him gladly. He was greatly troubled, perplexed, confused. He had two minds. He didn't know which way to go. Your conviction, convictions are going to be confusing to people because if you see yourself as an object of grace that God has forgiven you by his grace through faith in Christ. If you see yourself as a trophy of God's grace, that creates a certain humility in you. And because of that, you treat people with respect and kindness. You live your life to, to help people in human flourishing to the degree you can. You, you forgive quickly. And people see that in you, and that is, those qualities are good, and people want to be close, but they get close and they find out that underneath Underneath, you have this core convictions of what the Bible says. It's what has always caused the trouble is that Christians are the ones early on that created the hospitals, that stood against abortion, that stood against slavery, that have sought to help people. That comes out of a Christian ethic, but underneath that Christian lifestyle are these convictions about what the Bible teaches. Your convictions. Herod was confused by John the Baptist. Loved to hear him preach, but he didn't like when he pointed that truth toward his own sin. Let me give you a fifth thing, and I'll try to bring it to a close. Your convictions will be costly at some point. At some point. You, at some point, we can only adorn the truth and, and say it as nicely as possible and be as respectful and kind and humble as we possibly can. But at some point, we run out of the niceties and the truth remains. John wasn't going to recant. And so for him, in verse 21, all the way down to verse 29, you find out that he became just a, just a pawn. And it cost him his life. What do, we, what do we walk away with when we read this? A couple of things. Here's the first one. Number one, I hope, that you'll, I hope that you'll be confident. I hope that you'll be confident in the goodness of God and the grace of God, the forgiving power of the gospel of God. I hope that you'll be confident that God has placed you where you are 
for his glory. Some of the, some of the where you are is so difficult, you never would have chosen this for yourself. Be confident in our sovereign God who has all things in his hand and he's taking you somewhere. Number two, be strong. Be strong. Not in yourself. The Bible says to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Be strong in what he's given you. Trust in him. Trust, trust that he will hold you up. Trust that he's taking you through something that is part of your own sanctification and growing as a believer. Be strong. Look, be faithful. Students, be faithful. Be faithful to the gospel and to Bible truth. Be faithful. Be faithful to the gospel that tells us that God has loved you and forgiven you, that he's given you grace. When you think of sin and you, when you are tempted to sin, be faithful. Think of Jesus dying on the cross. Think about the nails going into his wrists and hands. Think about the pain. Get the vision in front of you and be faithful to the gospel. Think about, the, think about where sin is going to take you. Think about where grace has provided for you. Be faithful to the gospel. I'll give you a fourth one. Honor God. Honor God in, in every hard situation, in every tragedy, every time your heart is broken, every time you are frustrated, find a way in there to honor. How are you honoring God? In every hard situation, honor God with humility, honor God with trust. Cling, cling to Christ knowing that he has brought you this far, that by grace he's going to carry you, cling to Christ. Because the truth is, <clears throat> in the end, faithfulness to Christ is what matters. With your heads bowed this morning, won't you join me in a time of commitment and prayer before we sing our last worship song. Join me with your heads bowed and let's pray together. As we close our time together this morning, I'm going to invite any of you here, if you're new to Hickory Grove, you don't, you don't yet know Christ. We want to talk to you about what it means to give your life to Jesus, to, to believe in Jesus dying in your place, and then forgiveness based on that. This morning when we sing, a good time to do that. If you want to come and talk to our pastors, they're down here, down front, and pray with you, talk with you about some of these things. Maybe you, when we sing this morning, you want to just come and ask God to give you strength. You want to pray. It's a good time to do that. Maybe you want to pray for someone that you know is, is in the far country or is not a believer. You don't know what's going on with them. They need Christ. Maybe you just want to ask God to, to give you a second wind filled with grace, filled with his spirit. God has spoken to your heart this morning. When we sing our final song, we invite you to come forward. Father, thank you for Jesus who saves us and calls us. Thank you for grace that sustains us. Thank you for the word that points our sin and points your grace that cleanses us. Father, I pray that you would work in a way that honors Jesus, strengthens your people. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand please as we sing together?